Hey guys, welcome back to my podcast. This is Journeys with Jen. I'm Jennifer Griego. Today I am here with a good friend of mine, Gray Thornton. Gray is the president and CEO of the Wild Sheep Foundation. And he, over the years, he's become a very good friend of ours. So, Gray, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, Jen. And it's uh, what a privilege to be on your podcast. Thank you. And my dad is also with us today, as per usual. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Gray. And Gray, thanks hey, for Bob. thanks for coming on with us and taking the time. Really appreciate it. Oh, you got it. Such a pleasure. Yes, and um, so I was just kind of curious because um, WSF is a very big is very big in conservation and things like that. So I was wondering how you originally got into hunting and conservation. You know, Jen, that's that's a interesting question, and and there's there's some kind of funny twist to it. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll start with how did I get into hunting? And, and that's that's interesting because my dad and my mom have asked the same because I do not come from a hunting family. So I, mm-hmm. I'm a, you know, non-traditional from that side. I, the My uh, my dad didn't hunt. My mom didn't hunt. Uh, my mom got me into fishing. Oh, and cool. then I'd fish a little bit with my dad. Sadly, they uh, they got divorced when I was five, but I still have mm-hmm. relationships with both, and both are remarried, and I have a great relationship with both my stepdad and my stepmom, so that wasn't an issue, but I guess it was kind of an evolution. I, I started uh, fishing, and I read everything I possibly could. You know, I mowed lawns, I washed cars, I, I did all the things that a kid does to raise money to you know have some pocket change, and I would buy Fields of Dream and Outdoor Life and sport the field, and I'd read them cover to cover, and I was reading about bass fishing with Homer Circle and, you know, all that kind of thing, mm-hmm. and I guess that probably influenced me a little bit, and I, I started to get a little bit uh, a little bit interested in hunting, and, and so what ended up, long story short, I, I started climbing and rock climbing and ice climbing, and then evolved into this interest, I said, you know, I've always wanted to hunt, and I was so fortunate when I was working for Xerox Corporation right out of college. I had a client of mine, a guy named Daryl Amble, and uh, he was a Xerox client, and I, I heard that he hunted, and I, I just got bold, and I said, uh, you know, Daryl, you know, I, I, I want to learn how to hunt, and, and I want to learn how to reload, and I, I want to learn all these things, and would you teach me? Can I take you to lunch? And he said yes. Oh, and so that was, uh, oh boy, you know. 40, 40 some odd years ago, no, not not quite thirty, you know, thirty five years ago, and uh, or a little longer than that, and and it and it started a uh, what ended up to be a career uh, in the hunting and conservation business. Yeah, wow, that's that's really interesting. Um, and you, like you kind of mentioned earlier, you were working like in Xerox. So, what did you originally go into, like working in? Like, did you go to college to get a degree for that? So, so Jen. Um, I, I really like wine, and so uh, and I also like geology. So I went to, I applied to Fresno State University in California, and University uh, California Davis uh, got accepted to both, and the reason why I chose those two schools is they had an enology department, which is winemaking. Oh. So I thought I might go into uh, the winemaking business, uh, but I also had an interest in geology, so I thought, well, maybe I'll get there. And, and long and short of it, uh, Fresno State was about 86 miles outside of Yosemite Valley. And as I said, I was a rock and ice climber at the time. And 
So I thought, well, my goodness, 86 miles out of Yosemite, maybe I'll go to Fresno State. And if I don't like making wine, I just want to drink it. And it's also got a good business school. So <laughs> <laughs> I ended up switching. Uh, I decided that maybe winemaking was for somebody else. So I got a business degree. And right after that, I went to work for Xerox Corporation. And was a sales guy, and, and you know, I'm president and CEO of the Wild Sheep Foundation now. It was interesting. I was chatting with my sister as I was driving home to get on this podcast, and I, I said, you know, she was talking about her daughter, and and I said, get her into sales because you know, everything happens when something is sold or something is bought, and we're all sales people of some sort or another. You know, you're doing sales of of. Uh, you know, a, a concept, a thought, uh, an inspiration. You inspire people, Jen, but you have an incredible sales ability. So anyway, I got into sales, and then eventually uh, a wee bit of another story we can get into. I got into the conservation business. Oh, that's really cool. And um, so did you know kind of – well, when did you start to know that you wanted to kind of veer away from the sales and the business part to the more devoting yourself to hunting and conservation? Well, this is the funny part of the story. So um, I went from Xerox and then got recruited to a company called Burroughs. I was a top salesperson for Xerox, and so Burroughs decided that they wanted to recruit me, and so they did. That that organization became late, uh, later is called Unisys when it merged with Sperry Corp. Hmm. And so I left Xerox, which I absolutely loved the products, and I went to work for Burroughs, and I was in their commercial line, and I just floundered there. Um, you know, Burroughs was incredible in the financial institutions. Sperry was big in government, but I, w- I got hired in the commercial line, and we just didn't have the solutions. We, I would just get beat up by HP and IBM, and I was selling computers at the time, big, you know, big mainframe computers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and long and short of it, I, I, was, I, was, I started to hunt because of my Xerox friend, and I was interested in that. Uh, I was very involved in the shooting sports, and I shot uh, practical pistol competition. And I lived in California, and back in 1986, uh, some netball uh, grabbed an SKS and shot up a Stockton schoolyard. Mm-hmm. And the guy's name was Patrick Purdy. And California, in their, in their ways, uh, decided to blame the gun and not the person. Mm-hmm. And they, they initiated a, an assault weapons ban and a semi-automatic weapons ban. Uh, which would have included, you know, the shotguns that used for skeet and sporting clays and, you know, I mean, typical California, sorry to say. Uh, and so I ended up as a young 20-some-odd-year-old kid. Uh, everyone was bitching and moaning at the gun shop, and I said, well, let's do something about it. So as a 20-some-odd-year-old kid, I started a political action committee called Valley Coalition for Constitutional Rights. Oh. And we built that into a very effective pack. Uh, it later became an NRA affiliate, um, and I was, you know, conducting meetings every week and, and uh, political r- rallies. I was on wow. various senators' campaign committee. You know, it just it was an amazing education for a 25, 26-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, that is pretty amazing. You started at that yeah. age. That's how is you know, but it was it was just you know somebody's got to do it. And I thought, well, I will. <laughs> and then uh, I was sitting in my office. I worked for Xerox, or I worked for Unisys about five years. And I, I hate to say this, but I hated life. You know, I hated my job. I loved mm-hmm. life, but I hated my job. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, Burroughs and Unisys are good companies. I just wasn't, it wasn't a good fit for me. And I, and I drive to work and go, gosh, I wish I worked for Xerox again. And, 
and I'd look at other people in their cars, and I'd wonder if they were happy. And I, and I realized right there that, you know, um, you can do well at, at, at something, but you'll never excel at something unless you're passionate about it. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't passionate about Unisys, and I wasn't passionate about our products. I wasn't passionate about the com- company. I was a member of Safari Club International at the time, and I looked in their newsletter, Safari Time, one evening sitting in my office, and it had a job opening for a membership and chapter development coordinator in Tucson. And I read what the job description was, and I thought, well, gosh, I've done this on my own with Valley Coalition. Mm-hmm. I'm aware of Elk Foundation. I've been to their banquets. I could, I could build chapter networks. So... I put a marketing plan together for SCI, flew out to an interview, presented my marketing plan to the president and the administrative director there, and they hired me, and I went to work for Safari Club International in 1990, almost 30 years ago. Wow. Oh, wow. That's, that's really cool how that kind of evolutionized. Is that a word? Evolved. Evolved. <laughs> you know? And how long were you in Tucson, Gray? Um, Bob, I was in, uh, with an, uh, with SAI for seven years, from 90 to 97, uh, was their first, their chapter development coordinator, then their chapter and membership director, then I eventually was their acting executive director, administrative director, and then I was recruited to Dallas Safari Club, uh, over in Dallas, I moved to Dallas, I was with them for 11 years. And then uh, retired, if you will, from Dallas Safari Club in 2008. I wanted to, you know, I've been in the safari clubs for 18 years. And I wanted to get more into conservation. Uh, I, I wanted to make more of an impact on, um, you know, the wildlife populations and the habitat that we have. And, and, and recognizing that if it's not for the hunters and the anglers, uh, we wouldn't have the wildlife populations we have today. In many cases, we wouldn't have the habitat that we have today, but we certainly wouldn't have the wildlife. And so I wanted to be more impactful for that, and and, uh, an opportunity came uh, up with uh, Wild Chief Foundation. I was very aware of the organization. I was potentially going to do some consulting work for them, but they had had the president's CEO position open up, and they said, would you consider? And I interviewed and got the job, and I've been with them for 11 years now, and I... uh, I love every day. You know, everything. Uh, every day is a new challenge. Um, wild sheep have uh, certain challenges uh, from disease, from advocacy issues, and the like. And so, you know, it's it. Every day is a is a new beginning and a new opportunity to do something great for uh, not only the wild sheep resource, uh, but the great members that we have within the Wild Sheep Foundation. Mm-hmm. Wow, Excellent. yeah, that's really cool. So you just kind of. Went from the Safari Club, we went from International to Dallas, and then you just, did you just go, you just went straight into WSF, you didn't do anything else, you just got the CEO job or president? Yeah, I, you know, I was, I was the executive director of, of Dallas, so I was used to being the boss there, and so it was from, from Dallas, I took a month off. Um, moved to Wyoming from Dallas, Texas, and did a little fly fishing in the Bahamas, and then uh, started in earnest on May 1st, uh, 2008, with Wild Sheep Foundation. Oh, wow. And you had some significant challenges when you first started at Wild Sheep, didn't you, with the organization and its status? Yeah, Bob, you know, sadly, and you and I have, and, and Jen have chatted with this offline, but you know, back uh, back, and I guess it was in two thousand four or two thousand five. 
um, Wild Sheep Foundation and Grand Slam Club Ovis, another uh, another organization in our industry, uh, got into a um, a controversy on the term Grand Slam. Um, you know, grand, there's Grand Slam breakfast at Denny's. There's a Grand Slam of you know the, the, the Grand Slam in baseball. There's a Grand Slam of tennis. Uh, and there's also, as we know, in our in our community, the, the mountain hunting community, there's a grand slam of wild sheep, which is the dolls, the stones, the desert, and the rocky. Um, grand Slam Club actually owns that term, and you know there was an intellectual property debate and controversy. And instead of communicating, they litigated. Sadly, such a waste. And mm-hmm. uh, Wild Sheep Foundation, or FANAS, or Foundation for North American Wild Sheep, as it was called back then, got into a lawsuit with Grand Slam Club Ovis, and uh, it nearly destroyed both organizations. Uh, it cost millions of dollars in legal fees, um, millions of dollars in settlement fees, which I inherited and had to solve. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I came to... Uh, I came to Wild Sheep Foundation. We had $30,000 unencumbered funds in the bank. Uh, I had a staff of eight that I was responsible for them and their families. And uh, I had to get busy in building a foundation and, and getting us back into what we should be doing, and that is putting the keeping wild sheep on the mountain. And, and Bob and Jen, I'm, I'm happy to say now, you know, it's been 11 years. It took about three years to solve that that problem and then turn around and then from 2013 on we've just had record after record after record and and what i'm very very proud of is you know through the generosity of our membership uh, our our sponsors our our donors our auction buyers our our exhibitors um you know last year alone the wild sheep foundation directed 5.6 million dollars that's 5.6 million to mission programs benefiting the wild sheep resource, advocates you know, advocating for wild sheep uh, conservation and uh, enhancement, and uh, education, including youth education. A $23.7 million we've directed in the last five years alone to, wow. to our mission. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we've come a long way from 2008 of $30,000 in the bank uh, to spending $23.7 million in the last you know, last five years on mission programs. So <clears throat> we do it with a, a fabulous uh, team of staff and a fabulous team of volunteers and a membership, um, which you all are, you know, Summit Life members of our organization. Um, you know, that's, that is how we are able to do what we do, is we, quite frankly, in my opinion, have the most generous um, members um, of, of any organization out there that are the most passionate for the resource and those passionate for the organization so very very blessed yeah thank you Greg. and i agree it is it, it's a very good family type atmosphere there a, a lot of very generous people that are committed to the resource and conservation and um and the people the staff that you have at wild sheep are outstanding mm-hmm. but it's it's humbling the amount of generosity that that comes forth in the auctions and the fundraising and people are well aware of the mission and um they believe in it wholeheartedly. I think you know a lot of Jennifer's audience members or listeners aren't necessarily hunters, and a lot of them don't really understand um, how sportsmen are are conservationists and how hunting helps animal populations. But we'll get into more of that with you. But it, it's certainly clear and evident at um, at the Wild Sheep Banquet that that is the priority, and the people are very generous with their money in order to support that mission. 
You know, and Bob, and, and you, you know, you and Jen uh, have seen it, have seen it firsthand. I mean, Jen, you, you know, you you spoke to our organization uh, this year, obviously, but you mm-hmm. know, the, the year prior, and and as as I, you know, as you and I became friends, um, you know, you you brought, you know, we we had you know sixteen hundred people in a room and, and a bunch of Type A personalities, and they all have one something that they want to talk about. And when you got on stage and you told your story. Um, you captivated an audience and you created a family in that, in that room of, of 16, 1700 people that were, were there with you, following you every step of the way, every bit of your challenge, every bit of your inspiration, every bit of the things that you have overcome in your journey. Um, and you, you, you inspire us. And, and it's not only, you know, it's not only what you do for Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, you know, and, and, and Bob, Jen, look at, Look at what the foundation does for other, you know, other other organizations. You know, we mm-hmm. we do about yeah. an eight million dollar convention, and 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 you know that's that that's a gross figure, uh, but you know we we focus on wild sheep conservation. But last year, which which is this this convention, our last convention, twenty nineteen, we directed three hundred and five thousand dollars of our auction proceeds that don't even doesn't even go through our system, goes directly to other. Other entities, you know, we, we, we gave money to the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. $100,000 went to a orphanage in New Mexico last year, an elk hunt. And this, Bob, this is right to your key to our non-hunting listeners. Uh, an elk hunt on a private ranch in, in New Mexico, free-range elk hunt, sold and then was redonated and then sold again and then redonated and then sold again and redonated and sold again and finally purchased and and when I'm talking about sold and redonated, one guy spent $60,000 and then mm-hmm. redonated it to challenge the next guy or gal to, to you know, to up the ante. And we raised $200,000 wow. for an orphanage in New Mexico. So, you know, yes, we are focused on wild sheep conservation, but we give to cystic fibrosis, cancer research orphanages, Wounded Warrior Outdoors, one of the Wounded Warrior Outdoors' biggest uh, biggest advocacy groups and fundraiser for them. We partner with them. They're our official uh, a warrior group. And that, you know, that is helping, you know, our nation's heroes uh, who, have, who have, you know, had battlefield injuries, whether, you know, physical or mental injuries, uh, brain injuries often. Mm-hmm. And I raise my form. So it's it, it shows the altruism of the of the Wild Sheep Foundation, you know, membership, and I, and I think it just talks in general of our industry. You know, we're a patriotic group, mm-hmm. uh, but we're a you know we're a very giving group. And whether it is, you know, to to uh, you know a young young lady who inspires us for you know through her strength and intrepidness, to you know a wounded warrior, to you know a, a Hispanic orphan in New Mexico. You know, our organization is one that's going to step up to the plate and, and spend the money to help those people. And that just makes you feel good. And, and that is the family of the Wild Sheep Foundation. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Yes, and um, it being there and seeing that happen in person is such an amazing experience. And to see things like auction items go up and get sold and then donated back and see the money get raised. And being able and to speak to them is such an amazing thing. And I just wanted to thank you for giving me that opportunity. Um, I have learned so much from going to Reno every year and talking to people, talking to you, talking to other people at the show. 
And being able to speak up there, I've learned a lot about myself, learned a lot about hunters and learned a lot about conservation and things like that. And being there is so inspirational and we learned so much. And I just wanted to thank you for the opportunity that you've given me through that. Well, Jen, you know, the, the pleasure and quite frankly, the, the, the thanks comes from our side because you, you know, your poise and um, your presence and your presentations, you know, I, I wanted to, you know, I, I kind of make a living giving speeches around the world and I wanted to take lessons from you. <laughs> 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 you um. could give me a few pointers and I'm going to follow them. <laughs> I don't know, Gray. You do, you do an outstanding do job at that. that um, <laughs> just off the cuff, and in, in which you remember to to thank, and your your speeches and stuff. Your composure is outstanding. And you know, Jennifer. Well, I Carol and I were at the convention. We went the first couple years by ourselves. I think the first year I went by myself, and then you know I experienced it. And I said, Carol, you need to go to this with me. And then after she went, you know, we said we need to bring our whole family to this because the values that the Wild Sheep Foundation espouses and the people there um, embody, you know, the patriotism, the values, the moral values, the religious values, and the humility and all that stuff are just great lessons for for families. And I'm, certainly ours has benefited tremendously, and Jennifer has evolved tremendously. And mm-hmm. as I know, you're acutely aware when when the Wounded Warriors were auctioning off a bison skull and, and Jennifer watched the Wounded Warrior on stage um, be emotional about her, her circumstance, having an amputation, um, it made Jennifer think about her, reflect on her life circumstances, and inspired her to pursue her challenge. And it's really changed her. And that's it's uh, it's one of those things that there are a lot a lot more takes place uh, at that convention at that meeting than people booking hunts and buying um, auction items. It's um, there's a lot of inspiration and good values and stuff that that get transmitted there, for sure. Well, that's that's it's it's good to hear. And you know, again, we we we. You know, we're a membership organization that is, you know, the three of us have talked and, and, and Carol have talked. It, it, it is a family. You know, it, it is the, you know, it is the Wild Sheep Foundation or Wild Sheep Family. And we, we treat each other as family. We, you know, we, we, we have each other's back. And when times are bad, we're there. Um, and it's, you know, the friendships that are made, the bonds that are made, it's, it's pretty special. So, mm. yeah, we're, we're. We're fortunate we want to maintain that culture. It's a, it's a huge part of what makes us successful. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a huge part of what, what allows us to do, you know, what we do. And, and that is, you know, advocate for a, for a wild sheep resource. Mm-hmm. Yes. Cool. And apart from the whole human part and the family part, um, I just want to talk a little bit about the conservation part. Because uh, obviously as a hunter, I've grown up knowing that, we do a lot of things for conservation and going to these events and um, the Sheep Foundation, like the weekend in Reno, we learn a lot about that. Um, but I do have a lot of friends and a lot of my listeners don't aren't hunters. They don't quite know what conservation is and they don't quite understand what hunters do um, for conservation. So um, I just kind of wanted to ask you how WSF helps the animals through conservation and kind of in general, like what conservation is. Yeah, and I think, I think what we should first do is, is maybe maybe set some you know some parameters of you know what is conservation and what is preservation. And there's mm-hmm. often you know often a, a crossover in a thought. Um, preservation is the non-use of a resource. Yeah. You know, you're preserving it for the future. Uh, the best the best example of a preservation model is a national park. Now, 
you may be able to fish and consume a fish that you take in a national park, but you're not going to log, you're not going to mine, you're not going to, for the most part, oral restrict. You're not, you know, you're you're not going to hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, in in at least in North America, in some some national parks around the world, it, it's a little different. Conservation is a little different. Conservation is the wise use of a resource and mm-hmm. the sustainable use of the resource. Uh, the, you know, the whole conservation ethic came. You know about you know Alba Leopold, but you know kind of a, the father of more you know modern conservation, as we'd like to say, is is our own great president Teddy Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. And, and what was happening, as he saw, is there was this view. Um, you know, it was, it was the tragedy of the commons. Um, you know, we had this European view coming over from you know Europe to to you know North America. The Native Americans had their own view of of sustainability. Uh, we had this view of, gosh, you know, we've, we've been under kings and, and lords and, and nobles and didn't have access to their animals. We mm-hmm. came to North America and we, we saw this, what we thought was an inexhaustible uh, supply of animals. And guess what? It isn't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we shot out the buffalo. We shot out the white-tailed deer. We stripped the forest. We shot the elk. We you know, persecuted the wolves. You know, yada, yada, you know, the whole I mean, we basically, by the, you know, the, the end of the, eight, you know, the, the, the 1800s, you know, we had decimated wildlife on this continent. Mm-hmm. And, and a few very, very brilliant uh, men, and maybe even for the wrong reason, because they were saying, well, we're going we're gonna to form some organizations like the Boone and Crockett Club to document the disappearing wildlife and, you know, created trophy collections you know, to document the disappearing. Well, they also learned that, you know what, wait a minute, we can establish game laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can fund uh, wildlife agencies. We can create wildlife agencies. We could create national parks. We could create the National Forest Service. We could create the National Park Service. And they did. And so what ended up happening is that a, a conservation e- ethos that um, many people don't know came from the hunter. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the hunter... You know, whether you want to say we're growing targets or not, and I mean, that might be an easy thing to say, but, you know, hunters and anglers have an absolute love for wildlife. Yes. Um, and we appreciate wildlife and we'll spend money on wildlife. So, you know, that first and foremost is, is you know, kind of the conservation model, and we, we, we like to call it the North American conservation model. It's got seven pillars won't go through all of them, but basically wildlife is a public resource. Wildlife cannot be sold for, you know, for, for profit like market hunting, which is what, you know, how we decimated a lot of the wildlife, you know, in, in the 1800s. You know, we were, we were shooting deer, elk, and bighorn sheep to feed a growing populace. Well, now you can't do that. You know, you can have game farms in certain states and sell wildlife that way, but that's a that's a domesticated wild animal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we set these parameters, we set rules, and many of them are self-governed, but many of them are not. You know, we, we established game laws, game agencies, and then we established a funding model that would fund this. 74% of all wildlife conservation in North America is funded by the hunter and angler through hunting licenses, fishing licenses and 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 tags um and many people don't know that for the most part your tax dollar is not going to make sure that you got bluebirds and whitetail or mule deer in your yard mm-hmm. it is the hunter and angler who's funding it through buying that hunting and license you know uh, uh hunting or angling license through their local uh, state agency so 
That's how the North American model is funded. It's been very, very effective. And we brought wildlife populations back from the brink. Mm-hmm. You're talking about sheep. Yeah. Wild sheep, you know, the bighorn sheep in North America. Estimated that when Lewis and Clark were making their way west in, in you know, 1800, 1805, there were estimated about one to two million bighorn sheep in North America. That's Canada, U.S., and Mexico, and that includes the Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep in the desert. Um, Jen, we decimated that population of one to two million mm-hmm. down to 25,000 by the late 1960s. Wow. 25,000 bighorn and desert bighorn sheep in all of North America. Um, we did it through overhunting. Uh, we did it through market hunting, and primarily it was caused by contact with domestic sheep and goats. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a disease transmission issue that caused all-age die-off. Um, fortunately, through, through the efforts of organizations like the Wild Sheep Foundation and our, you know, our membership and our chapters and our affiliates and our state and provincial agency partners, we've increased that number up to 85,000 big one sheep in North America. Wow. Uh, that's a, you know, it's a threefold increase. But as you know, I mean, 85,000 is a far, far cry from the million to two million we had in 1800. So we've got a long way to go. But we've done a great, uh, you know, we've, we've done some great work, but there's a lot more we can do. Mm-hmm. It is such a scary thing, Grant. I think that um, you elucidated that and outlined it very well. And your your knowledge of the statistics is impressive. It's, I think so many people think that, um, populations die because they get overhunted but it's amazing how quickly an entire herd can be uh, decimated by the transmission of diseases from domestic sheep and goats and mm-hmm. a lot of people don't don't really have a grasp on that how dangerous it is to be grazing these animals near wild sheep populations yeah yeah and, and, and it's you know it's, it's it's maybe easier for for a person that doesn't quite understand the issue is it's very similar to you know, we as Europeans brought to Native Americans. You know, we brought we got brought smallpox, we brought measles, we brought diseases that they that the Native American was completely naive to, right. and we we decimated the population of Native Americans um, by introducing a a novel pathogen to them that they were naive to. That's the exact situation that we have with domestic sheep and goats. They're they have, and domestic sheep in particular, a cousin of the wild sheep. They have a variety of pathogens um, that some can be resident in bighorn sheep because they've been in contact with the domestic animal before. Um, but, uh, you know, for the most part, the, the, the wild sheep are naive to those pathogens, and it can cause respiratory disease and eventually pneumonia, mm-hmm. and, and then low, low land recruitment. So... That's the challenge we face. Now, we're a multiple-use organization. We're not there to advocate for putting domestic sheep producers off the landscape or, you know, break them from their, you know, their, their family uh, business and traditions. Mm-hmm. But what we do advocate for is educating people on the issue um, and then working on collaborative solutions to separate the two cousins, you know, the, the bottom line, and there's a lot of complex issues on this disease thing. Wild Sheep Foundation spends millions of dollars on disease research, and sadly, every time we think we've, uh, you know, 
we've lifted up the rock and we've got the answer underneath. There's five more stones underneath with five more questions. We go, geez, we've got to start over. But the bottom line is this. When you put a wild sheep and a domestic sheep together, bad things happen to the wild sheep. And so, you know, the key is let's let's work for solutions to keep them separate. It's it's challenging. It's challenging on public lands. It's very challenging on private lands. But if we can if we can acknowledge first and foremost that there's an issue, you know, kind of like smoking, you know, there was an industry back there that was saying, no, no, there's no issue. Well, guess what? There is. <laughs> uh, if we can first of all acknowledge there's issue, you know what? Then let's come. You know, let, you know let's work together for solutions. So, you know, we uh, we we you know, we we strive to do that. I just had a, a very exciting situation this last week with a. Uh, an outfitter and a wheat producer up in uh, central Montana that brought in about 600 domestic sheep. Uh, he didn't quite understand the issue. Um, now, this is his private land. His private land ranch he has been on, and his family has been on that, that deeded land for 101 years. Wow. He has the absolute right to uh, have domestic sheep on his, his property. Um, all we did, and, and a very, very gracious host invited us into his home on his ranch, on his property with his domestic sheep. And I just asked him, can I sit down with you at your dining room table and educate you on the issue? And is there a way we can come up with a solution that would protect also the bighorn sheep that, that are also living, uh, you know, right above the Missouri River breaks on his land? And, um, you know, the, after four hours of meeting, and some of it tense, and some of it a little bit, uh, you know, back and forth, um, we agreed that we think we can come up with a solution. And he, he acknowledges that there's an issue. He acknowledges the value of the bighorn sheep. He acknowledge, you know, we acknowledge his absolute right to run domestic sheep. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we kind of walked away, and he walked away going, you know what? I think we can work this out, and we'll find a way to not not have domestic sheep here, and uh, and and that'll protect and conserve and enhance the bighorn sheep population. So it's all about communication. It's yeah. all about respect, um, and and you know that's again what we what we try to do. Mm. Wow, that's, that's really excellent. cool. And it's awesome how you will go up to people and like work together to help find a solution because we like you said we do love these animals so much we want to make sure that they'll be here for a very long time <clears throat> even after we're gone and i know like in school we learn a lot about when the europeans came over and how people were coming into the western plains and just shot out buffalo and i think that um is also why a lot of people have a very bad view of hunters is because they think of us as people who just go in and shoot random animals because when they're uh, in school, they're kind of taught that hunters are people who just go kill animals, and we, like, shot out the buffalo, and we do things like that. So I think when people learn that, that's kind of how they view hunters, but they don't learn the part about how we realized that when we came over and when we did that, those things, that was not ethical, and that we did ruin a lot of the population, but even today, we're still, like, making that up, and working on building up the population and we do so many things to help uh, avoid what we did and help kind of fix what we did when we first came over here. And so I think what you said was very um, educational. It taught me a lot of how much damage we did, but also how much today we are trying to fix what happened. 
So I think that's really interesting. I think it's very important for people to know that because I know I've had friends who they're, when I tell them like, well, people kind of view hunters as this and they're like, oh yeah, that's how we viewed them. But then I kind of tell them my like version of hunting and like, this is what hunters do today that um, it kind of opens their mind to not having that one view that they kind of were taught when they were younger. So um, thank you for your input on that. That was very interesting. And I know I learned a lot from you saying that. Well, and I think, uh, Jen, you just articulated that point beautifully. And you know, there's, you. there's a big difference, you know, there's a major difference between market hunting, you know, which is just wanton slaughter. And, you know, we, we did it with ducks and geese. And, you know, it was just to feed people. And we thought the resource was, you know, unexhaustible. Uh, mm-hmm. And selective hunting is what, which, which is what you do, which is what your dad does, which is what your brother does, which is what I do. Mm-hmm. You know, very selective hunting, taking, you know, taking a, you know, the older mature animal, you know, out. And it's, it's, it's the classic case of, you know, the loss of one benefits the many. Um, and, and there's also a real big difference between poaching. And, you know, mm-hmm. you often, you know, you hear that. And, and, you know, you hear more of it maybe in, you know, maybe in Africa. But, you know, there's, there's certainly poaching that goes along in North America. And, and we all know that's a crime. That's a crime against every one of us because in North America, we own the wildlife. You know, it's a public resource. So mm-hmm. when someone takes, a an animal out of season or, you know, I wouldn't call them a hunter. Yeah. You know, they're, they're a criminal. You know, somebody that's somebody that, you know, shoots, you know, shoots some big deer and, you know, you hear the terrible story, you know, well, all they did is they cut the head off and, and they mm-hmm. left it. Well, you know, that, that's not a hunter. That's a criminal. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, that, that person is stolen from all of us. Yeah. You know, not to mention, not to mention an absolute waste of a, a, a you know, a God's creature. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we know as, as ethical hunters, um, you know, it's, it's also a great source of fabulous organic healthy protein yes um you know and we're seeing that as a growing segment of our community yep. is mm. you know not the you know not the quote-unquote sport hunter but but the person that you know says you know what i want to know where my meat comes from i want to know that it's not infused with a bunch of harmful chemicals um, and I also want to be a part of, you know, part of, you know, providing for my family in a full circle, mm-hmm. uh, that I, you know, that I participate in that process that, you know, whether it's, whether it's filleting a fish, uh, or harvesting an elk and then butchering up that elk and then sharing it, you know, sharing it with your family and sharing it with friends. Mm-hmm. And there's another dynamic and there's, you know, you, we, we know a, a, a brilliant conservationist in our industry. You know him, I know him, a guy named Shane Mahoney from Newfoundland. Yeah, mm-hmm. he gives um, a great a, speech. A very, very, very elegant speaker. Yes. But, you know, Shane and I have become fabulous friends over the past 10, 15 years. And, and Shane has these little tidbits that, that are just, you know, just kind of fabulous to think about when you, when you, you know, think about first as, you know, as human beings as, as, as omnivores and carnivores. But, you know, Shane, you know, I, I had him over to my house when I lived in Cody, and <clears throat> we were having a barbecue, and, and you know, I'm out, and, you know, cooking, you know, probably cooking some burgers or cooking some steaks, and and Shane, you know, walks up, and and we're, we're looking at the fire, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're looking at the barbecue, mm-hmm. and, you know, and Shane, you know, Shane says, uh, Gray, uh, you ever thought about the fact that, you know, we like to stand around a fire and watch meat cook? And I go, well, yeah. And he goes, 
well, you know, you celebrate Thanksgiving. We as Canadians celebrate Thanksgiving. He goes, do you ever watch a turkey roast in the oven? <laughs> I went, well, you know, or ham. Well, no, you don't have. He goes, that's the thing. You know, that there's something primal yeah. about, you know, it brings us back to our early roots of we've taken an animal, we've rendered it down to, you know, a portion that we can consume, and we cook it on a flame, and there, you know, I mean, Jen, the, the pictures of you eating, you know, eating, I think it was your doll sheep or your stone sheep. Yeah, my doll sheep. Um, you know, and, and, and you know, on a, you, you've got a piece of backstrap on a willow stick over mm-hmm. a fire. And I know, because I've tasted that too, I know that was probably the finest meal you've ever had in your life. Yes, <laughs> exactly. it definitely was. Because so, you, have, you have earned that. You know, you climbed that mountain. You... You you forded those rivers. You bore the burden of the pack. You know you you know you made the right shot, and then you respectfully you know take that beautiful doll sheep, mm-hmm. and you know you've got its hide, you've got its horns. You're going to remember it forever because it's going to be on your family's wall. But more than anything else, you also brought every bit of meat back because that's not only the law; it's the ethical thing to do, mm-hmm. and it's a darn good tasting thing to do because you got to go back into camp and sit there. And as you're filling out your tag, you know, you can roast doll sheep backstrap over, you know, a fire or put a little piece of tenderloin on a hot rock and you and your dad and your guide and, you know, your friends can sit there and, and enjoy, you know, what you've accomplished. And there's, there's something to be said for that. And, and, you know, it, it, it's a, it's part of the hunting experience. It's, part of our ethic um, that we often don't share you know we, we often don't you know often just don't share that part of it and, and I, I think that I think we're missing something there because I think we can reach some of those people that don't quite understand um, you know that there's so much giving that comes from hunting another mm-hmm. one of Shane's tidbits he goes you know I harvest a moose on Newfoundland mm-hmm. and when I harvest a moose and this, you know, neighbors do it. You know, they, they, you know, got moose steaks, and you got a moose roast, and you go to your neighbor who likes moose. You go, hey, I harvested a moose, and you know, here I'd like to give you some moose, you know, steaks, or I'd like to give you a moose roast. And the neighbor goes, thank you. Mm-hmm. And he goes, does anyone ever go to Safeway or Costco and buy a ham, and then walk to their neighbor and go? Hello, Jen Griego. You know, I'm I'm Bob Jones, your neighbor, and I just went to Costco and I bought a ham and I'd like you to have it. It doesn't happen, mm-hmm. but it happens in the hunting community. You know, and, it, and it's it's a part of our ethos. It's a part of our lore, um, and it's it, it's just a part of our heritage. You know, we share the harvest. There's something about it. You know, from the from the pilgrims on. You know, on on, on today. You know, that's that's a part of the hunting experience, and and I think many people don't understand that. Yeah, that's a great way that you put it, because I, I, when I explain hunting to my non-hunting friends, that is one of the major points that I say is that we take all the meat, and we enjoy all the meat, and especially with our family of five, we tend to get a lot of animals, and we can't eat all that meat, and we do share it with friends and other family members. When they come over, we'll bring meat over to them, and we're and like, it's always Look, such we a have pride elk. thing. It's mm-hmm. always such a pride thing for the kids to give somebody, you know, a part of an animal they harvested, and we celebrate it when we have it for dinner. This is mm. Timmy's elk or Carol's sheep or Jennifer's sheep or we make a big deal out of it and it's it is a big part of that, the celebration. Your description made me kinda hungry though. 
Yeah. Right, you're about cooking, <laughs> cooking the tenderloin in the, in the backstrap. Well, yeah. my uh, one of my uh, employees, uh, Garrett Long. Um, we he he and I and and our uh, our, our, our his wife and, and, and my my girlfriend, my fiance now went oh, on a bison hunt. Oh, congrats! And uh, we went on a bison hunt this fall, and we we were the, the permits that we had were to take two-year-old bison that was a part of their management plan on this on this area the free-range bison mm-hmm. and so you know i can tell you there is nothing better right. than a two-year-old bison so tonight we're going down to visit garrett and his wife jenna and we're going to have bison burgers awesome. and and i can tell you i mean there's nothing better i mean uh, no, so it, and it is it, there's a there's a pride there of um you know you you did you participated in the harvest you're you know, doing the full circle, the circle of life, and, and oh, by the way, I'd like to share that with family and friends, and you're proud of it. Mm-hmm. It was funny, when the kids were in grade school, they went to a, a little Lutheran school, and most of the people that were in their class did not hunt, but we'd go on a hunting trip, and I'd make jerky and give the kids bags of jerkies to give to their teachers and classmates and stuff, and they just loved it. <laughs> they, they're uh, So many of your, your guys' friends, Jennifer, would say, mm-hmm. well, I don't, I don't hunt, but I certainly support it now that I met you. And do you have any more jerky? They yeah. always just look forward to, when yeah. do you go hunting next? Yeah, they do. Um, but like you mentioned, like on the mountain, eating my, it was my doll sheep. And I, it was honestly one of the best meals I've ever had. And I don't even know if you could call it a meal because we had some mountain house food. I think I maybe had like lasagna that night. And then I had meat on a stick, but it was the best thing I've ever tasted, especially after hiking all day. And getting that ram and packing it out, it was definitely one of the best meals I've ever had. And I will remember it forever because I had so many memories. We were sitting on the fire. We were telling stories. We were telling hunting stories, the story of what just happened that day. And eating a ram that I had just harvested, it was so fresh. It was so good. And even with barely any seasonings on it, it was just the experience and the flavor of the meat all made it into one of the best meals I've ever had. And anyone who's ever been on the mountain and eaten one of their animals that they had just harvested in that moment, it, it, it doesn't matter how good it tastes, even though it does taste amazing. The whole experience just adds to how great that experience and that meal is. And that meat is such, so, such great meat. And there's no other alternative to eating meat that you've harvested. And that, especially like the work you've put into that, adds so much to the meal that you have. Yeah, no, you're uh, you're you're spot on, Jen. Yep. Okay. Well, we kind of talked a little bit about this, but um, like I said, a lot of my friends are not hunters, and I like to explain to them what hunters do, and especially with conservation. So, um, kind of, what does WSF do? Kind of specifically, you said that a lot of the money we raise goes to other foundations and things like that, but. When it goes to conservation of the animals, and like you mentioned, like putting sheep back on the mountain, what specifically do um, like hunters do in these conservation movements to help the animals? I know like we do relocation and build like water holes and things like that. So I was just kind of like wondering what else people do for the animals. Great question. Um, you. you know, when I when I mentioned that you know we went from twenty five thousand big orange sheep in North America in the late sixties, early seventies to eighty five thousand today. Uh, you, you mentioned transplant. That's exactly how we were able to build these populations up. You know, there's many, many areas of habitat that are suitable and historical 
bighorn sheep habitat that have no bighorns. You know, they're estimated. They're either mm-hmm. it's either shot out or diseased out. Um, and so what uh, we do and our partners do and our state and provincial agencies do are take populations that have surplus and trap them uh, either by helicopter and a net gun, uh, sometimes drop nets, sometimes by a dark gun, and, and you, you, know, you, you tranquilize them. Um, and then we put radio collars on them. Uh, we do disease testing, uh, health uh, monitoring. We'll do ultrasound. Uh, and then we move that, that bighorn sheep uh, to another location. And, you know, we'll, we'll move them in groups, you know, 10, 20, 30, um, and then release them into these, these areas that were historical habitat and start new populations. Mm-hmm. And that's how we've gotten a threefold increase. Um, interesting enough, uh, our vice president of conservation, Kevin Hurley's got 35 years experience with wild and game and fish as their sheep biologist. Uh, he did an, at my request, he did a, an, an estimate of what it costs to trap, as I described it from a helicopter, mm-hmm. uh, do the vet work, put on a GPS radio collar, then transport and then release. And it's about $4,700 per sheep. Wow. So pretty pricey, you know, for mm. argument's sake, five grand per sheep. Well, Jennifer, we have, we as our, as our community with the agencies, we have moved over 24,000 bighorn sheep and 1,200 wow. transplant actions. So now that started in the late 40s, so $5,000 now is you know, a little different from then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can imagine the cost. Of, of of doing that kind of work, so that's you know that's one of them. And then you you talked about another and very you know very very important in the desert southwest uh, and Mexico and you know Texas is water developments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know if you look at human populations, where do we gravitate to? We gravitate to what we need. We need mm-hmm. shelter, and we need water. Yes, we need food, but we need water. We can survive for you know a week or so without food. You can't survive with a week for a week without water. Mm-hmm. So we gravitate with areas with water. Well, what have we done in the deserts? You know, Las Vegas. Las Vegas are springs. Well, we've got now a city in Las Vegas. Well, what did we what did we dislocate? You know, well, we dislocated wildlife that would go to springs near Las Vegas. So mm-hmm. the fraternity of the Desert Bighorn, one of our partner affiliate organizations, uh, celebrated its 55th year in, in service to desert bighorn sheep in southern Nevada, they go out and they build uh, water developments, which are quite frankly, uh, in many cases, um, a big roof. Um, we call it an apron, but you know, if you think of a metal roof and the gutter on a metal roof, when it rains, the, the water pours off the roof into the gutter, goes down to the drain spout, and goes away from your house. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're clever and you're, you know, mathematically inclined, you can calculate how much uh, apron or roof you need to fill, you know, many, many thousand, you know, thousand gallons tanks. Mm-hmm. And so we build these aprons, they collect the water, there's a big, big gutter, it you know, takes the water off the apron into the gutter, down into a spout, into holding tanks. And then those holding tanks go off to what we call a drinker, and that drinker is either has a float valve like a toilet, 
but now you know folks have gotten a lot more clever and they're going no let's just make them with lasers we can we can get the level of the drinker the exact level of the water in the tank so you don't have a a float valve go out and, Mm -hmm. and break and that provides water for wildlife and that's how nevada has gone from 2,000 bighorn sheep and, and desert bighorn sheep to 12,000 wow. uh, bighorn sheep and desert bighorn sheep from 1970 to, you know, now 2019. So it's basically providing water for wildlife. Now, that doesn't only benefit bighorn sheep. It mm-hmm. benefits quail. It benefits other birds. It benefits um, you know, the, the you know, coos white-tailed deer, you know, mule deer, Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, you know, it's providing supplemental water uh, where we've displaced wildlife because we've inhabited the areas that there used to be water. So that's another thing that we do. We do um, habitat work uh, on controlled burns and providing, uh, there's conifer encroachment in a lot of areas, all the years of fire suppression that mm-hmm. we've done. You know, we think wildfire is bad. Well, wildfire is actually very good. Yeah. Uh, wildfire is the way God made to rejuvenate land. Yeah. And the problem is we have we have you know suppressed that wildfire for two hundred some odd years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so instead of having small little fires, we've gotten huge, catastrophic, devastating fires. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we work with uh, the Forest Service and other agencies to do controlled burns, uh, burn out some underbrush. We often come in too with you know teams of chainsaw, you know guys with chainsaws and gals and cut out you know uh, encroaching underbrush to provide better habitat. Uh, we fund research on cheatgrass, which which starves the soil of nutrition for healthy grasses that animals can eat. So kind of a, you know, a lot of, and then a lot of research, quite a bit of money goes into disease research, trying to figure out some sort of a uh, solution to this disease problem, which is the biggest impediment to restoring bighorn sheep in North America. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. And the, because I've heard of it of just like, this is just what happens, but for you explaining like the process and what goes into that and how much effort and um, like thinking about it. Uh, goes into certain things for the animals is so interesting and obviously you're mentioning it for wild sheep because that's what wild sheep foundation does but there are a lot of other um, foundations and things like that who do it for like elk and deer and a lot of things that we do for the sheep also benefit those other animals so all of that helps the whole animal like kingdom i guess um in the world and that's very interesting and it's very cool to hear that you have like the numbers so that's also very helpful instead of just saying like it helps a lot you have the exact numbers or not exact but with the rough numbers which also helps um especially people who don't understand hunting helps them kind of understand how much the things hunters do benefit the animals and um also um obviously the wild sheep foundation doesn't isolate itself to like the u.s but also does things internationally and so i heard that they're um expanding their conservation efforts to asia and so i was kind of wondering what the unique challenges are and the opportunities that are associated with the efforts moving into conservation in asia that's a great question and yes we've we've got initiatives uh that are going on right now in tajikistan kyrgyzstan and kazakhstan Uh, and I'll, i'll chat a little bit about kazakhstan i was fortunate to go over there and, and meet with government officials and, and actually the number three person in their government last September. Um, 
And they have, uh, you know, old world sheep, as we call them. They're Argali mm-hmm. sheep um, and, and four subspecies of Argali. <clears throat> and um, they haven't utilized that resource from a, from a sustainable standpoint, from a hunting standpoint, for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, there's poaching that does go on, and whether it's poaching or, or subsistence hunting, you know, someone, mm-hmm. someone uh, you know, taking an Argali sheep to feed his family, you know, that, that, that's kind of sometimes hard to call that poaching. It, you know, it might just be feeding your family. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they haven't utilized a resource, and so they actually came to the Wild Sheep Foundation, and uh, and our partner in this case with Portland International Foundation, they said, you know, would you would you set up a a, a sustainable hunting program for us? Um, and we said no, and they kind of looked at us funny. You know, this is all in Russian and through interpreters. <laughs> mm-hmm. They said no, no, we we won't set up a hunting program for you. But what we'll do is we will, you know, we'll, we'll work with our wildlife biologists, and, and I've got, fortunately, three on, on my staff oh, wow. uh, that, that each have over 30 years' experience, so almost 100 years of collective experience uh, on our staff of wild sheep you know, biology. You know, we'll use our resources to develop a conservation program, our Gali conservation program for Kazakhstan, and we'll fund it through limited hunting permits. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, in that case, we're, we're kind of exporting uh, our model, our North American model of conservation to Asia. And an important component of this is in many parts of the world, uh, hunting is only conducted by the, the very, very elite, mm-hmm. which is different, again, from North America. Our North American model is an egalitarian model, you know, it's all of our resources. Uh, you know, you can, you know, you can buy a, 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 you know, a tag for a deer in Montana for 25 bucks and go harvest a deer to feed your family. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, in many parts of Asia, that's impossible. It's not going to mm-hmm. happen. It's only for the very, very elite of the very, very wealthy of the very, very connected. Well, part of our sustainable use model is that you've got to empower the local people mm-hmm. to benefit from the resource, whether utilizing it for themselves uh, or gaining financial incentives from, you know, a foreign hunter coming over to their country and taking that, you know, selectively taking a few of the population. So it's a very low impact on the resource, very high impact monetarily. Uh, and what does that money go to? Well, in, in some rural populations, it goes to clean water. Mm-hmm. It goes to schools. It goes to health care. Uh, you know, just general human needs. And so, you know, the, the, um, you know, in undeveloped countries, you know, they can, they can look at their wildlife resource, not as competition, you know, because many of them, you know, their view of, of, of wealth, and it is their wealth, is their domestic stock. Goats, yaks, mm-hmm. you know, donkeys, burros, camels, you know, you name it, um, which compete with the wild sheep. Uh, for forage. And so, you know, if there's fewer wild sheep, there's more forage for their domestic goats or the domestic sheep. So, you know, we can show them that, hey, uh, you know, maybe one Argali sheep that's harvested and you're allowing those Argali sheep to use that resource um, instead of your domestic sheep and goats and yaks, uh, you're going to benefit more monetarily from it because you're going to get you know, $10,000 from the cost of that hunt that goes directly into your family. Mm-hmm. So that's a, you know, that's an interesting component. 
the other thing is 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 a big question, and you know those that have listened to the comments that I made earlier on disease, mm-hmm. where sheep are not you know are not to contact domestic sheep and goats. There's a, a long question that we've had that we haven't had the data on, or why why are North American sheep so naive to these pathogens of domestic sheep, where in the old world. Where they have, you know, we, you know, we have two hundred plus years of, of of contact between wild sheep and domestic sheep, and we've lost, you know, a good, you know, almost, you know, a good portion of our wild sheep because of it. Mm-hmm. Why, in the old world, where there's been not two hundred years, but two thousand or more years of contact, why are the Argali seemingly able to deal with? the pathogens that a domestic sheep in Kazakhstan or Tajikistan or Turkey, you know, have. So we're also doing disease research, and maybe, maybe we'll learn something from old world wild sheep that we can then transfer to our new world wild sheep. So there's a really symbiotic relationship going on right now. We're helping, you know, our Asian friends or Central Asian friends conserve their argali, and in turn, and I'm sending a wildlife vet and a biologist over to Kazakhstan this next week for two weeks of doing some testing. Uh, we've got a, a lab in Dushanbe, uh, um, um, I think it's Kyrgyzstan, uh, that will do the, do the work. And, you know, we hope to get some really good data um, from old world sheep that we might be able to benefit new world. So... We'll benefit, uh, we're doing work in Asia that will help them, and we're doing work in Asia that may very well help uh, North America. Wow, yeah, that's that's so interesting. And, um, that's exciting stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, didn't, I guess I never really thought about how the, difference, the differences in like, North America compared to places in Asia and the relationship between the domestic and the wild animals. That's really interesting in the way that you... <clears throat> explain that um i never really thought about it that way so that's it's really cool to hear your point of view on that and overall like that point of view um well i just wanted to thank you so much for coming on here and talking to us it was very very educate like educational i learned a lot and um <clears throat> you obviously donated your time and i know you're very busy so thank you so much for doing that and i definitely loved hearing your expertise about the conservation conservation movements that have happened over the past decades is very interesting so um, I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on here and talking about that and I also wanted to thank you again for um, like kind of taking me and being able to put me up on stage I know um, I was very nervous about that but thank you for like kind of believing in me and um, being willing to put me up there, even though I might have totally messed it up. You didn't know what was going to happen. Um, but uh, the Wild Sheep Foundation definitely is a family. I know we talked about that. And every year, I, it is like the highlight of my year, which kind of sucks because it's like the very beginning of the year. But um, it is so, something that I look forward to so much, seeing the people going with my family and just hanging out with everyone there because they have become a family to me. And so I just wanted to thank you for everything you do and for coming on here and talking to us. It was a lot of fun. Well, I've, it's the pleasure's been mine, Jen. And, and again, you're, you're an inspiration to me. You're an inspiration to, to you know, our entire Wild Sheep family. Um, you know, your dad and your mom are just unbelievable people. And I, I feel blessed to know them. You're, you're 
brothers are just great. So you're you're uh, your family and we're family, and it, it just feels good to be uh, you know be a part of it. And, and it's been my pleasure to you know maybe maybe share a little bit of uh, you know what what little knowledge I have of, of of the you know the wild sheep world, and at least talk about conservation and what hunters and anglers do and. Mm-hmm. And how we can continue to uh, to conserve the wildlife that, that you know all all you know people whether you're a hunter or non-hunter or an angler or non-angler you know we all we all need to work to uh, to conserve uh, so that you know our children and grandchildren can enjoy what we have today. So we're we're in great exciting times and we're enlightened uh, people. We're blessed to be in uh, the United States of America mm-hmm. uh, yes, with so so many privileges that we need to be grateful for every single day. And, uh, you know, you, Jennifer, inspire us because you, uh, you know, you overcome challenges and, and teach us how to be better. So anyway, it's been my pleasure and great to be on your podcast. Well, thank you. And yeah, thank you again for coming on here. You definitely did have a lot of insight to bring to it. And that was very interesting to hear. So thank you for taking us on your journey and the journey of conservation in the u.s and in asia it was very interesting to learn about because you know life is short and so am i and i'm just trying to make the most out of every day and i hope that you guys do too i hope you all have a great journey and make it an epic one